following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So this morning, we are going to be in Isaiah 1. We're jumping into kind of the body of the book now after the introduction last week. Isaiah 1, uh, picking it up in verse 2. And Carolyn Hansen is going to come and read this morning's passage for us. Thank you, Carolyn. We're reading from Isaiah chapter 1, um, verses 2 through 20. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thanks, Carolyn. All right, so as we come to this passage, there's, there's an image 
that we want to keep in mind. There's one kind of prevailing image here, and often this is the case in Isaiah. There's kind of a main dominant image that helps frame what's going on and kind of makes sense of the, of the passage. And the image that you want to have in your mind as you read this passage is the image of a courtroom. So you've got to picture this, this courtroom like a really ornate, austere courtroom. Uh, because the, the passage, the flavor of this passage takes the form of a lawsuit, or it's like a trial that's unfolding. So it's kind of like heaven itself has been turned into, into a courtroom. And this place that's usually the throne room of God has become this place of judgment. And, and you have this courtroom scene where God walks in. He's kind of like the prosecuting lawyer. And God comes in. He's, he's the main lead prosecutor in this case. And he's also, of course, the judge. God plays that role of the judge. But in this passage, he's mainly the prosecutor. He's mainly the prosecuting attorney. And most of this passage is taken up with God as the prosecuting lawyer, just laying out his case against Israel. Just charge after charge after charge, one thing after another, laying out the grievances that he has against Israel. And you notice as you read the passage, there's no, nobody stands up and speaks in Israel's defense. Right? You never hear that. There's no defense lawyer that stands up and says, oh, let, me, let me plead the case for Israel. That doesn't even happen. And it's not because God is not a God of justice. It's because Israel has no defense. Israel has no case. Israel has no excuse. They're totally defenseless. So all Israel can do is stand there in the dock and just listen as God lists these charges, one after another after another, accusing his people. And Israel just has to stand there and take it. So it's a pretty intense passage, but that image of the courtroom is kind of the way to see this. It's the way to enter into what's going on here. So the main charge that God brings against Israel in this passage is in verse 4. Have a look at it. In verse 4, you have these four-word pairings here. You have four words, first of all, that describe Israel in a positive way. God describes them as a nation. Israel is God's own nation, constituted by Him. They are, they are a people, second word. They're a people brought together by God. Uh, thirdly, they're a brood that word brood, it's kind of like a family or a generation. This is God's own family. And then they are his children. They're his own flesh and blood. So you have these four words that describe this close relationship God has with Israel. But then alongside each of those four words, you have an indictment against Israel. So they are a nation, but they are a sinful nation. They're a people, but they're a people who are guilty. They're children, or they're, they're a brood rather, but they're a brood of evildoers. And they are children, but they are children given to corruption. So four words of affirmation, and then four words of indictment. And God is saying to Israel, this is my people. You are my people. You are my family. You are my flesh and blood, but you have completely turned away from me. You've completely abandoned me. And after all the things that God has done for his people, rescuing them from slavery, bringing them out through the Red Sea, giving them the land, giving them all they've need, re revealing himself to them, giving them the law, they've still turned their backs on him, hardened their hearts against him, run off after all these gods and completely abandoned the Holy One of Israel. And so God's saying, I, I love you, you are my people, but you have wandered so far away from me. And then the rest of the chapter is God just laying out the evidence 
for that charge and giving examples and giving illustrations and unpacking this accusation that Israel has turned their back on him. And one of the toughest things that God has to say to Israel in this passage, and this is going to get a little close to home for us, is in verses 10 through 15, he starts talking about their worship. And this gets a little bit awkward because he starts listing all of the ways in which Israel worships God, all all the different acts of worship that Israel were called to do. And he talks there in verse uh, 11 about the sacrifices that Israel were called to make all the animal sacrifices, all the burnt offerings that Israel brought. This was one of the central ways in which they were called to worship God. He talks about their festivals in verse 13, their, their moons and Sabbaths and convocations. talks about the Sabbath itself, this weekly festival or remembrance, this day of rest when Israel is supposed to be setting aside time to remember and focus on God. And he even talks about their prayer. He says, when, when, you, when you spread your arms out in prayer, this fundamental act of, of, of worship and, and prayer toward God, all of these things that are good acts of worship, all these things that Israel was commanded to do, they, these are right and good things. And yet God's saying, I can't stand them. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Imagine, can you imagine God saying that to us? Can you, can you imagine hearing these words spoken? To us as a church, I can't bear your worthless assemblies. Just shut up the doors. Just close the doors and go home. That's what God's saying. He's saying, you spread out your hands to me in prayer. I'm not even listening. I mean, that's how serious this is. He's saying, don't you think I've got enough animals of my own? Why, Why do you think I need more sacrifices? Why do you think I need more bulls and goats? Stop all of this meaningless ritual and of course, what God is saying is not that these, acts are, these actions are wrong because he'd commanded Israel to do all of these things, but he's saying, your hearts are so far from me that all of this stuff, it's just become ritual. It's just become hollow, meaningless, religious ritual that means nothing. And your hearts are, are a long, long away from me. These are just vestiges of religion. And yet you can live the rest of your lives following all these other gods, following the gods of all these nations around you. And then you gather together and offer these animal sacrifices and you think I'm going to be happy about it. God says, just stop. Just stop all this meaningless religion. This is the the problem of religiosity. And Israel had fallen deep into that hole. And you know, it's not difficult to draw some connections, is it, to our lives. And our worship today, I know this does hit a bit of a nerve for us, but we've got all of our own acts of worship too, don't we? You know, we show up, we sing songs, we take communion, we pray, we listen to prayers, people pray from the stage and we all join in and we all affirm that together, all of these things. And these things are good and these things are right, but when they just become hollow, empty, religious rituals, God says, forget it. I don't want to hear any more of your songs. I don't want to hear any more Chris Tomlin. I don't want to hear any more Hillsong. I'm sick of it. I'm blocking my ears. That's what he's saying. He's like saying, just close the doors. He's saying, how dare you get up and take communion when your hearts are so far away from me? How dare you come and worship together and then Monday through Saturday, you just live as if I don't really exist. You just live these self-absorbed, self-indulged lives and you come together, sing these songs. You think I'm going to be pleased with that. 
See, this is what God is saying to us, and it's difficult to hear, but this is the problem of religiosity. And where it ends up for us is that it places us in exactly the same situation that Israel was in, so that these words God speaks to Israel are words He speaks to us. He say, you are my chosen people. I do love you, but man, your sin is great. Your guilt has gone way, way over your heads. And you're a people given to corruption. It's not easy to hear this, is it? This is uncomfortable. We don't like this. This is not why we came to church today. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want something therapeutic. But sometimes the word of the Lord is is challenging. I told you this was going to happen with Isaiah. He's got things to say. God's got things to say that are going to challenge us. And he's going to challenge us about our own sense of religiosity. But when we just go through external acts of worship and we sit there in church and just mouth the words mindlessly, or even worse, we just check out of worship because we're just waiting for the sermon to have our ears tickled so we can go home and have lunch. When we do that, God says, forget it. I would rather you didn't even show up than go through that. So we end up in this place where we stand before God just as guilty of all this stuff. It's easy to throw stones at Israel and look at how guilty they were before God. We can see it more clearly from a distance. We don't see it as clearly in our own lives, but it's right there. So we stand in a place where we're just as guilty before God. And it doesn't matter. You, you, know, you, you may say, well, that's not me. I, I come to church and I mean every word I say. And I do genuinely worship God, and it's not empty ritual for me. And the bad news is that, you know, even for you, if it's not that, it's something else that makes us guilty before God. This is where we all live. Even if you're not a Christian, you could be agnostic, atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim. We all stand in this place of being guilty before the holy God of Israel. Because in one way or another, all of us have turned our hearts away from God. In one way or another, all of us have acted in ways, spoken in ways, thought in ways that have just turned totally away from where God wants us to be and who God's called us to be. And we've just turned, our hearts have turned inwards. We've turned towards ourselves. We've turned towards these self-gratifying, self-absorbed, self-obsessed lives. And so where we end up is in this place where God says guilty. You may not want to hear it. You may not even believe it. But this is the verdict pronounced over our lives. Guilty. It's not easy, I think, for many of us in modern culture to accept that we are guilty, that we stand under the judgment of God. But this is God's word. Every single one of us, guilty. It's not easy, I think, for Western culture to accept this idea that we're guilty. Western culture has a very difficult time with the idea of guilt because we've spent centuries trying to convince ourselves that guilt's not real. Guilt's kind of a fabrication because what we've tried to do is remove a sense of moral absolutes and a sense of higher moral law that we're accountable to. And this, is, this has been the trajectory of Western culture for a long time, that if we can remove moral law, if we can get rid of that sense that there is a moral law above us that we're all accountable to somehow, then if you can remove moral absolutes, you can remove sin. Because if there's no higher law to subscribe to, then there's no, there's no such thing as sin. Sin just becomes this archaic, outdated sort of concept. And then, of course, if there's no such thing as sin, then there can be no such thing as guilt. Right? No sin, no guilt. If there's no higher moral law, what have we got to be guilty of? Nothing. 
And this is where we are. This is where we are culturally now in the West. A lot of this is traced back to a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a philosopher in the 19th century. You might have heard his name. You might not have. He was, I think we've got a picture of him here. He was a well-known philosopher. Also the father of the walrus moustache, this guy. It's pretty impressive. Uh, but here's what he says. Meaning and morality of one's life come from within oneself. Healthy, strong individuals seek self-expansion by experimenting and by living dangerously. Religions that teach self-pity, self-contempt, humility, self-restraint, and guilt are incorrect. So what he's saying is if you've got a religion that teaches some kind of guilt, that teaches that guilt is real and that there's some kind of higher moral law that we all need to subscribe to, that is false. That is incorrect. You should get rid of that. The only kind of morality you need to be interested in is the morality within yourself, and particularly for Nietzsche, the quest for power. That was the big deal. And whether we know it or not, that has had a huge influence on the flow of Western culture. You know one of the biggest followers of Nietzsche in the 20th century? Hitler. Adolf Hitler. Hugely influenced by Nietzsche. Nietzschean philosophy, driving a lot of... And what all Hitler is doing is taking that philosophy to its logical conclusion. Because if there is no higher morality other than my own personal moral compass, whatever that may be, and if there is no external sense of guilt for anything, then if I've got the reins of power, I'm free to do as I please. And if I see a certain people as being subhuman, I'm free to oppress them and subjugate them and try and exterminate them if I can. It's exactly what he did. All he's doing is taking Nietzschean philosophy to its logical conclusion. So if you want to see where that philosophy goes, you look at the gas chambers of Auschwitz. That's where Nietzsche ultimately leads you. Because it's about my own sense of what is right and wrong, not any sense of accountability to a higher moral law. What I find stunning is that even though that's now historically the case and we've seen the Holocaust, how many people still espouse this kind of philosophy today? And we, we may not have even heard of Nietzsche's name, and yet it's all in a million different ways we still talk about this philosophy. You just live your truth you just be true to what you want to do and who you are. And okay, well, that's right for you. And you believe that. And that's your morality. Great. You know, that's good in his mind. And that's, and that's different, but that's great. And let's just celebrate that. And we all this kind of you live your truth. I live my truth stuff. It's all just Nietzschean philosophy still continuing to haunt us in Western culture. All it is, we're continuing to try and get rid of the idea of guilt. Trying to get rid of that sense that we have something to be guilty about. And yet, isn't it true? that that ghost of guilt still seems to haunt the human heart. That there's still, in spite of 200 years of trying to get rid of guilt, we are still haunted by that sense of guilt, that sense of inner shame, that sense of there's something, there's something lingering there. So many people, counselors will tell you that guilt is, is driving so much of the neuroses that they see. Guilt is still such a deep human experience. We've tried to shake it. We've tried to ignore it. We've tried to philosophize our way out of it. And yet we still have this lingering sense of guilt. We're like Lady Macbeth trying to wipe the blood off our hands, but it's not coming off. We can't get rid of the stain of guilt. And the Bible will tell you why. Because guilt is a fundamental part of the human condition. Going all the way back to the garden. 
This is where the Bible goes with the idea of guilt, all the way back to the original first human beings who rebelled against God in the garden, and they incurred this guilt, this culpability before God. So when the Bible comes to deal with guilt in passages like this, the Bible has a very direct way of addressing the subject of guilt. You will never see in Scripture the Bible trying to philosophize its way out of guilt. You'll never see the biblical writer saying, well, just, guilt is just kind of a personal illusion and you just need to just forget about that and that's not real anyway. You will never see the Bible look the other way at guilt, try to excuse it or explain it away. What the Bible does is say, yes, you are guilty. Hard as it is to hear, yes, you are guilty. You are objectively culpable before a holy God. In fact, your guilt is greater than you ever thought it was. But guess what? There is a remedy. Guess what? You were waiting for this one, weren't you, Gary? Guess what? There is. Your guilt is deeper than you ever realized. But you have a Savior who is greater than you ever imagined. It's only when you realize the depth of your own guilt and depravity, you will grasp the truth and beauty of the gospel. And here comes the gospel word in Isaiah. It's always there. You just got to look for it. I know it's a strong passage of judgment, but then just look in verse 18. God says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. You see what's happening? It's like come back to the trial. Come back to the legal proceedings. It's like God, the prosecuting attorney, suddenly stops the trial. And he says, let me, just, let me just have a moment to speak with the defendant. And so God comes over to us. And he says, come now. Let's settle this. I've got a settlement offer I want to put on the table. And my settlement offer is unconditional grace. And Israel's waiting there thinking this is going to be a settlement offer like with, with some form of massive punishment attached to it, years of penance, whatever it might be. And God says, no, no, here's my settlement offer. Unconditional forgiveness. That's what's on the table. Let's settle this now, once and for all. That's the word of grace that comes to us from the very God that we've sinned against. This incredible offer of unconditional grace and forgiveness. He says, I know your sins are like scarlet. I'm not looking the other way at that. That's the reality. But I will make you as white as snow. I know that your sin is as red as crimson, but I will wash you and make you as white as wool. This is the gospel. The gospel according to Isaiah. He saw it. He saw the seed of it anyway. He didn't see the whole thing. And there's nothing here in this passage that tells us exactly how God's going to do this. We hear this word of love. We hear this word of promise. We don't know how God's going to do it. But the seed that God plants in Isaiah 1, he eventually brings to full blossom in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's ultimately where this leads. Because it's in the death of Christ, particularly on the cross, that we see how God's going to fulfill what he talks about in verse 18. How's God going to take our sin? That's scarlet. How's God going to take this blood on our hands and wash it so that we are as white as snow? How could that ever happen? God says, I'll show you how. Look at the cross. That's how. I'm going to put my own son on the cross. My own flesh and blood. Israel, you're my children, but this is my own dear begotten son. I'm going to put him on the cross. He's going to be hung up and strung up to die. And on that cross, he will take your sin. He will bear your guilt. He will take all of your failure. All your mistakes, 
all your flaws, all your brokenness, all your guilt, all your shame, all your condemnation. He will take it. He will bear it in his own body and he will die to take it to the grave. And he will cancel all the charge of your legal indebtedness against God. He will take the full punishment, the full penalty, the full sentence, so you can walk away acquitted in the jury in the courtroom of God. This is the incredible, unspeakable offer of grace that God makes to us because we have a guilt bearer. We have a sin bearer in Jesus. That's the difference. Reminds me of the words of that old hymn. Some of you know it that says, Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Incredible. We are guilty and vile and helpless. He's the spotless Lamb of God. The one person who ever lived who didn't deserve the cross. But full atonement is what's on offer. Because he went to the cross and suffered in our place. What a savior. And so now, the only place where we can have our guilt dealt with fully and completely is at the cross of Christ. It's the only place. You can try and deal with your guilt some other way. And people do. People spend their lives, don't they? Trying to deal with their own guilt. All kinds of ways. Karma. Try and convince yourself it's something to do with a previous life that you've got to atone for in the present life. People have all kinds of ways of self-atonement. If I can just live a good enough life, if I can be a good enough person. I think Christians sometimes do this subconsciously. They're just trying to self-atone for their own sin. I think this is sometimes what people think religion is, what people think the Christian faith is. If I can just be good enough, if I can just do the right thing, if I can just be a kind person, if I can just do this thing in the church or whatever it is, or give money or be in a life group or serve over here, maybe I'll deal with this problem of guilt. And we might not articulate it like that, but at a deep level, that's all we're trying to do. Atone and atone and atone and cleanse and cleanse and cleanse. And it's a completely futile journey. You never get there. You never feel like you can do enough. All it does is bring you further down because you realize the depth of darkness in your own heart. Or you're on the other end of the spectrum and you think that doing these things is in fact dealing with your guilt, in which case all you're doing is adding the sin of pride and self-righteousness to your already incredibly long list of sins, thereby incurring more guilt. That's not a pretty path to go down either. Either way, Dealing with our guilt in some other way, shape, or form is completely futile. And God's saying to us all the while, just come to me. Would you just come to the source of dealing with guilt and let me deal with it for you at the cross? That's where you have been cleansed. That's where you've been freed. And so God's invitation now has come. Come and find that freedom. This is the choice that Isaiah puts before us. God puts before us. At the end of this passage, there's two ifs. In verse 19 and verse 20, he says, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. So God's saying, here it is. Life and death, you know. You, you make the choice. If you're willing to come and be willing and open your heart and entrust your life to me, you will find that even though you are guilty and sinful, you can be cleansed and freed, renewed and pure before me. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the merit of Jesus Christ. But if you choose not to, then you can continue to have guilt just lumped upon you and live in that place of darkness and condemnation. If you want to, God gives you the ability to choose. 
And we look at those two options and we think, well, surely that's a no-brainer. I mean, surely everyone's going to take the offer, right? Surely everyone's going to take the settlement. No one's going to want to keep living in guilt. But that's not the path Israel chose, is it? You, re- you keep reading. Keep reading the history of Israel. You know, it's, it's the story of a people that kept on saying to God, no thanks. I'll just keep on doing things the way I want to do them and living my own life, thank you, and bowing down to whatever God I want to bow down to, thank you. And, and I'll just reduce God to my size. That's the way they went. And they were punished for it. So the choice is not maybe not always as obvious as we might think it is. But it's a simple choice God puts in front of us, life or death. He says, you can live in guilt or you can live in freedom. If you're only willing to come to me, I will take those sins and I will make you as white as snow. And it's amazing the way God brings things together. You know, I I never realized as I was preparing this message that it would land on a day when Ellie was going to get baptized. But we're going to walk out the door and see this all come together in one human life, aren't we? In a few minutes. I mean, it's just the perfect object lesson of exactly what Isaiah is talking about. Because this is the journey that Ellie has been on. And she, she's living out the truth of what God says in Isaiah 1. She's acknowledging that she is a sinful person before God, as we all are. She's not looking the other way at that. She's not ignoring that. She's fronting up to that. She's owning up to that. That she, she carries that same sin in her heart that we all carry. And yet she's heard that word of grace that God has spoken. She's heard that offer that God's made. Come now. Let's settle this. And she's taken that invitation that even though her sin was scarlet, she has been made as white as snow. Even though her sin was red as crimson, she's been washed as pure as wool. This is her life. And we're going to watch as she goes into the waters of baptism. And it's like that old life that's just governed by sin and full of guilt and shame and all of that. That just goes down into the water and that is just washed away. It's done away with. And this life that comes out of the water is the new resurrected life, pure righteous, holy, accepted before God. Not because of anything that she has done or has earned, but purely as a free gift of the grace of God. We're going to see the gospel in action played out in Ali's life. And so we see all of this coming together. But as we watch it, that same choice hits home for us. Because God make, makes the same offer. He gives us all the same choice. One way or another, we've all got to choose. And if you, if you don't choose, you've already chosen. You know, God, you you can keep on living in that place of guilt or you can step into freedom. I think the the problem maybe for for many Christians is I know there's a lot of you in this room that you have made that choice and you say, yeah, I've I've accepted Christ and I've had my, I know my sin is cleansed and I know that objectively my guilt has been dealt with, but you still feel guilty. Is that right? You still feel guilty. Subjective, that's called false guilt. You still feel those inner subjective feelings of guilt because you've done stuff wrong and you keep doing stuff wrong, right? Because Christianity doesn't immediately reprogram your behavior. So you keep on messing up, stuffing up, screwing up. You keep on feeling guilty about that and you feel, how, how can it be now that I know, I'm, I know I'm, 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 I'm cleansed and washed, but I still have this lingering sense of guilt in my life? And this is where we need to recognize that we have an enemy and one of the names the Bible gives him is the accuser. And that is one of the, one of the ways the evil one will continue to agitate your heart. He will constantly accuse you of the things that you've done wrong. And he will constantly bring up stuff from, from the distant past. You find this happening sometimes like things you thought you had moved on from. He will just bring back into your mind and rub them around again in your conscience. 
And he'll just rub your face in all the stuff that you are not proud of because that's what he does. Because he doesn't want you to live in that freedom that Jesus offers. He doesn't want you to live in that place. He wants you to continue experiencing guilt and shame long after you've become a Christian. And sadly, that's where so many people live. This is where, friends, we need to keep soaking our minds and our hearts in scriptures like this that speak to us a different word. Speak to us the word of grace. It's not enough to accept that once. We need every day to continue speaking that word of grace to ourselves. Scriptures like this one. Scriptures like Psalm 103, which say, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. When the evil one reminds you of your sin and you feel like it's right there and all my failure is just weighing down on me again, you remember the words of that psalm. Where, where is your sin? It's as removed from me as the east is from the west. That's how far he's taken it away. Or scriptures like Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Just those two words. We've got to speak it into our bones. It's not enough to silence the old voices. We've got to replace it with a new voice, the voice of truth, the voice of God's word. Some of you need to marinate your minds in the truth of scripture and get some of these truths of God's grace into your heart. That yes, you were guilty, but now you're a son and a daughter of God. And you don't need to live with those feelings of guilt anymore. I think sometimes we've got to be creative and find other ways of getting the same truths into our heart. Maybe it's through an image. I've spoken to you before about the painting of Rembrandt's uh, Return of the Prodigal Son. And I've found that a helpful image to return to. I think we've got a picture. It's hard to see on the screen, but go and look it up on, on Google Images. Rembrandt, Return of the Prodigal Son. And it's a picture of that parable Jesus told of the son who wastes his life and squanders his father's inheritance and then comes back again, expecting to hear his father judge him and condemn him. And instead, his father wraps his arms around him and embraces him. And I look at that to remind myself, that's who I am. Every single day, I am that son. Yes, I'm wearing the bedraggled clothes. And yes, I deserve nothing more than to be cast out of my father's house. And yet I have a heavenly father who says to me, Son, you were dead and now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. Come on in. Let's feast. And I just have to remind myself that's where I live. That's my reality. I live within the embrace of the Father. Maybe an image like that is helpful for you. Sometimes it's music. There can be a particular song that just sometimes music has a way of getting these truths into your bones in a deeper way than just propositional truths that you read on the page. Sam's going to sing a song uh, while we take communion this morning that just again speaks to us of the same theme of redemption and deliverance and says, Stop fighting the battle that's already been won. Why do you carry on fighting this battle, trying to deal with your own guilt when Jesus won that battle for you on the cross? He's done it. You are redeemed. You are not who you used to be. So live into that freedom. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ every day. Find whatever it is that connects with your heart and gets the words of God's unconditional promise of grace into your life, into your bones, into your spirit, so that you live in that place. That choice that God puts in front of Israel those two ifs, they are the same choice that God puts before you today. Yes, our guilt is great as a people. And I know that's felt heavy this morning, but we need to feel that. 
so that we feel the release of the grace that comes only from God. But God says it's like the banquet's been laid, but you've got to come to the table. The feast is prepared, but you've got to come and receive it. And whether today it's for the first time for you or whether it's for the one millionth time, God invites you to come. And he says, come to the table. Come to me. Come to grace. Come to freedom. You do not have to live a moment longer stuck in guilt and fear and shame. You can live in freedom. It doesn't mean those feelings will suddenly disappear. It takes time. It takes time to work through that and allow that new voice to be the dominant voice in our life. But God says you can start today. Start in this very chapter. Start with that word spoken to you. And then every day, allow yourself to hear God singing over you songs of freedom, songs of deliverance, songs of salvation. We've got to learn to hear the Father's song spoken over our lives, sung over our lives. The only way we can ever deal with the problem of, di- of guilt buried deep in our heart is at the cross of Christ. It's only there that we're going to find freedom and healing and the purity that we all so deeply desire. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to lift up to you now every person here who's just struggling under the weight of guilt. Lord, for some here, it's a heavy, heavy burden that they've been carrying for a lot of years. Things in their past that keep coming back to haunt them. Things in their present that every time they do something, it just drags them down in a way they struggle to ever recover from. Lord, you know there's people in the room right now that feel they can never do enough to please you and are trying and working at it, but still feeling like they're a constant disappointment to you. And God, I'm just so aware there's nothing I can say that will ever fix that. But I just cry out to you now, Holy Spirit, and want to pray, God, that you would come. That you would come and bring your grace, bring your freedom, bring that same word that you spoke to your people Israel into this room now and into the lives of those now who are struggling and burdened by guilt. And would you just speak that word of freedom deeply into their heart? Would you speak it to them in a way maybe they've never heard it before, that it just unlocks a door deep within them, deep in their soul, and just brings freedom and brings life? Lord, for those here that maybe don't know you and have never stepped into that and still carry that guilt before you, God, would you just let them hear again that word of freedom, that word of promise, that word of truth, that they would know and have the boldness to step into your embrace this morning. God, we thank you that we don't need to run from you that you're a God we can run towards because you are running towards us. So Lord, we are grateful for that and we ask that it wouldn't just be this morning, but you would help us all the days of our life to continue running into your arms and living in the freedom that you bring into our lives. We thank you. Thank you that you've dealt with our guilt, that you've cleansed us and atoned us and purged us at the deepest level. We love you, Lord God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.